This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters, with how-tos for habitat management and land investment. If you own, manage, or dream of owning land, this is the podcast for you. I'm here today with my co-host, Joe Baia. Joe, who's bringing us the show this week? Clint, this week's show is brought to us by the Quality Deer Management Association. Hunting season is right around the corner, and if you're in need of hunting liability insurance, consider the QDMA. They're dedicated to providing the broadest coverage available, including member-to-member coverage, guest coverage, and coverage for many high-risk activities involving tree stands, ATVs, and firearms. Many other policies contain hidden exclusions for these activities. In addition to your hunting liability insurance, it includes a complimentary QDMA membership, a $35 value for the primary policyholder and any additionally insured landowners. This program is underwritten by Lloyd's of London, one of the world's oldest and most respected insurance companies. All claims are handled in the U.S. through Outdoor Underwriters, Inc., a team with more than 20 years of experience with hunting land liability insurance. For more information, check out QDMA.com hunt slash hunting liability insurance. Clint. I spent about 15 hours uh, riding the bull, is what I call it, on a daggum tractor this past weekend. And uh, I'll, I'll have you know, I did not disc a single piece of ground. Are you proud of me? Did you crimp? <laughs> I didn't crimp yet. No, no. Uh, this was, we have just clearing roads and uh, opening up some, some new spots that, uh, but I did talked to my local NRCS office, uh, and I found a grain drill that I can rent. And $8 an acre is all it's going to cost to rent that that drill. I, I thought that was pretty cheap, man. I mean, uh, seeds that's a lot the, more the, expensive. The, that's for the acres it's used on, not the acres owned or leased. Right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right, yeah. I, I thought that was a heck of a deal, and, uh, you know, you just get in touch with your NRCS office. Check Basically, you check it out. There's not really like a – day fee there uh, I, I thought maybe there'd be a fee associated with how many days you had it and all that it's really you just check it out and let them know what you're when you plan to have it back is how i understand it and so uh it's like getting, a library book yeah yeah just uh i wonder if they charge you if you just hang on to it though you know or do you just get like a a fee that's waiting on you when you come back hmm, i'm not gonna do that but i'm pretty excited about that i really enjoyed um uh, learning from, from Grant Woods on, on the past show and uh, learning about some of those no-till practices. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a good thing for our plots. Start adding some topsoil. Uh, can't hurt. Uh, we're going we're gonna to give it a shot. But uh, today on the show, we're going to be talking about another type of agriculture practice, uh, not really related to hunting, but definitely related to land ownership and some new opportunities that are coming available for folks in the South in Alabama. Uh, and that's hemp production. And we're going to be learning all about, uh, what's legal, what's not, what'll get you high, what won't. And if it can be grown for a profit to help us do that today, we've got Patrick Moody and Hassie Brooks, who are both deputy commissioners for ag and industry with the state of Alabama. Patrick and Hassie, 
Welcome to Hunting Land. Oh, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Likewise. Well, y'all tell us a little bit about what you guys do for the state. Patrick, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit more about your position and what you guys are up to. Gotcha. Well, I'm um, here at the department. Um, our commissioner's a great guy, Rick Pate. Um, he's got an ag and industry background, so um, he's been at the helm here since about January. I had a chance to come back with him, and I'm the deputy commissioner that does a lot of the governmental affairs and legislative affairs type stuff, and then just kind of try to help with some of the, basically anything the commissioner needs, constituent services services, those type things, and help us navigate government world. Ag and Industries, we enforce a lot of federal programs, uh, hemp comes into that. So we get to try to take federal law and state law and explain it to where farmers and producers out in the real world can operate and not get in trouble. Gotcha. Well, Hassey, what about you? What's your main role there? Yes, sir. I'm like Patrick, I've been a part of Commissioner Page's team since he uh, took office January the 14th, and he kept me a part of his team. I've worked for our prior commissioner for the past eight years, and my involvement with the department is primarily around federal affairs, working with our different congressional offices, dealing with the different stakeholder groups in Alabama uh, related to an array of agriculture issues. And then uh, from time to time, some special projects that come up. And uh, of course, the topic of hemp has definitely been a special project for us. It's been a team effort here. So we're uh, we're excited about what's going on in, in year one. And thanks for this opportunity today. Well, if you unless you've been living under a rock, I know you've seen some of the signage around for different CBD oil and a lot of the new products that are out there for pain relief and all these, so many different things that's being promoted right now. But today we want to talk about hemp as it's grown and as it's used in agriculture. So let's start right there. Guys, what is hemp and how does it differ from marijuana, the drug that people know (laughs) so much about. Joe, it's funny. About the only thing that I have not heard someone say hemp can do is kill hogs. Everything else, hemp, hemp, uh, somebody thinks hemp's good for it. It does have some uses. One of the things that, that I found out in the hemp world, I don't think I had heard industrial hemp mentioned until about 2014, right about the time the 2014 farm bill changed. Started hearing some buzz about it, but there was not really a lot happening in the hemp world before then. And then as we started researching it, it was it was interesting because hemp's got a really kind of fascinating history in the U.S. In Alabama, hemp used to be grown. The U.S. government had a hemp for victory campaign back during World War II where they were actually trying to get farmers to grow hemp for textiles, for the for the ropes, the web gear, all that kind of stuff. A lot of hemp was coming from Asia. And as you can imagine, in the World War II time period, our friends in that part of the world didn't want us getting hemp. So there was a, a big push for it. So as we mentioned, textiles, fiber, paper was at one point made out of hemp. And you'll hear a lot of people, if you do any research on this, you know, I think George Washington grew hemp on his farm. So up until about the 1930s and 40s, it was a pretty well accepted crop. And then just cotton and other things came along to change some of that. So what's the difference? What's the difference between hemp and and pot? Hemp and pot. The farm bill and what we're operating under makes it kind of real simple. It's all cannabis sativa, but there are varieties of cannabis sativa that have THC levels of 0.3% or less. So we're talking very small amounts of THC as 0.3%. So if it's 0.3% or less, it's industrial hemp. If you're licensed properly and growing um, under a state program or USDA program, you can grow it 
If it's not, you're growing marijuana. Now, a lot of people, and I know especially that listen to this podcast, will kind of get this analogy that some of our biologists have told me. When you look at this stuff, you can't really tell a difference at first glance. And you're like, well, how in the world can some cannabis be hemp and some not be? And they've kind of explained it to me like there's short-leaf pine trees and there's long-leaf pine trees. You know, they're all pine trees to the casual observer, but once you dig into it, they are separate animals and, and you got different uh Well, they're actually plants. There. They're plants. They're not right. animals. Right. That's right. That's right. They're not animals. Um, <laughs> so they are plants. Different species. So, and, right. I mean, and hemp cannot get you high. Is that correct? That is right. So industrial hemp with this 0.3% or less, that's not going to get you high. I've heard different levels. You know, marijuana starts 10%, 12%. Some of the boutique varieties are growing out in Colorado, 20%, what have you. But yeah, this is this is very, very low THC. And we've had some instances where people have tried swiping this stuff thinking it was marijuana and you're going to be disappointed because it's <laughs> not going to do much for you. <laughs> why was it made illegal? If it has so many uses and so many productive uses, why make it illegal? Good question. Like almost any good thing that uh, the government gets involved in, there's various conspiracy theories. But I think the most accepted and common one is just the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 kind of started tightening up the hemp because it looped it all together. And, and we can talk about this here in a second. Everybody just started looping everything that was cannabis into the same basket, right? So marijuana and hemp was all the same. So they didn't completely outlaw it in 37, but they started regulating it and you had to be taxed to be involved in it. And then as the just agricultural practices changed, people started growing more cotton. It made more sense. So less people were growing hemp as a ag commodity. So your farming world kind of, you know, hemp wasn't as important to as it used to be. So nobody cared. And again, this is all getting looped in with marijuana. Then we run through the 60s. And what really kind of just nailed everything shut was the Controlled Substances Act, uh, which the Federal Controlled Substances Act passed. I believe it was signed into law in 1970. So that just lumped all cannabis sativa is considered as marijuana and considered as a Schedule One drug on a federal level. So that was when it just shut it down, so to speak. So after all that, I mean, these days, is it legal to grow hemp in Alabama now? So the framework we're operating in now is a kind of joint federal and state framework. And won't bore y'all with all the details, but the 2014 Farm Bill was really the first opening up of the hemp world on a federal level. And in a nutshell, the 14 Farm Bill said um, a state could work with the federal government to grow industrial hemp. Again, it was defined as that 0.3% or less THC varieties. You could grow um, industrial hemp as part of a state plan for research. Big driver behind this was the state of Kentucky looking for a replacement for tobacco products. We all know as in ag and forestry, things have kind of gotten stale. And so folks were looking for some new markets. And a lot of folks, especially in Kentucky, were pushing that, hey, industrial hemp, something that we used to grow we can grow it here. We're importing it for use in various products and American farmers can grow this stuff. So the 14 Farm Bill passed in 2016. The Alabama Department of Agriculture worked with our legislature and we put in place our state law that basically says Alabama can create a state program in line with the USDA program and, and do anything that's allowable under the Farm Bill. So how many growers are there now? Do you know the amount of acres planted? In Alabama, we approved through the year one pilot program, we approved 157 growers or considered licensed growers. 
ultimately we had 182 applications, but 157 of those executed license agreements with the department. And based on that number, 157 growers, that approved acreage uh, was around 8,000 acres. But as we have gone through this particular growing season, which we're still in the growing season currently, that acreage number is somewhere in the area of 3,000 acres. We haven't gotten quite our hands wrapped around on the exact acreage, but there's been uh, numerous cases if a producer got a permit or, or license to grow uh, 20 acres, he may have only planted 10 acres uh, based on you know seed cloned availability. Talking about seeds, I mean, in comparison to what we're used to seeing, soybeans, you know, cotton, corn, peanuts, you know, how do you grow him? How long does it take? What we're seeing is uh, we had some Alabama licensed growers that started uh, planting their crop uh, around the end of, of May, uh, all the way up to some of the licensed growers uh, putting their crop in the ground around the 1st of August. So there has been a fairly wide planting window. But what we're seeing now is those that planted in the latter part of May, uh, we have already sampled and tested some of those crops and and those producers uh, have harvested. And really, it's not necessarily calendar days as far as, you know, is it going to take 60 days or 75 days for a crop to mature? It's all based on uh, daylight hours. Speaking of that, uh, what affects the THC levels uh, or what can dictate you say one stand to go up or down in that? That can be an array. The availability of uh, water, well-drained soils, nitrogen uptake, climatic conditions. I mean, those are all things that, that we have learned from other states, but now we are experiencing that here in Alabama this year since you know we're in year one. You mentioned those other states. Uh, where else is this legalized? Is, are there other pilot programs like this being put into place with any of your neighboring states? Uh, there are, and um, uh, Hassie can get into some of the more details, but in the 2018 Farm Bill uh, that just passed at the end of 2018, uh, we're really going to see an opening up of hemp because that allows for even in states that have not passed state legislation like, like Alabama has, someone can apply directly to USDA and grow under a USDA program. So um, we're going to see this in other states, and I think Hassie probably will have the best info about who's actually growing now and out of our, out of our neighbors. Now, you, you guys were talking about the THC levels and what, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. And then, you know, Clint asked the question, is, it sounds like that can vary depending on environmental factors, but it's legal to use the strains that have lower THC. But is there testing being done once, once there's been a harvest to confirm that? Uh, is there a way that, that environmental factors could raise that THC level and, I guess, make a crop illegal? That potentially, uh, so so here's the process: is once we we have a license agreement uh, with a grower, and they're uh, we, we have approved their seeds or their clones that they will be growing. So they plant their crop; they're managing their crop like any other ag commodity that's grown today in Alabama. There is a process where, prior to uh, their intended harvest. Uh, that producer does consult with the uh, Department of Agriculture staff to let them know that they are ready to harvest. And 
from that point, we uh, have our inspectors come out, uh, schedule a, a farm site visit. We pull samples of that crop. Then the uh, farmer can continue or then can proceed uh, with the harvest. That sample that, that we at the state level take, that sample is brought back to our office and then we test uh, for the THC level uh, in that sample. And then ultimately, if it's below the 0.3 uh, limit, we then issue a, a statement to the grower telling them that, you know, their crop uh, is below 0.3 and then they can, they can move that crop uh, to its next destination. Uh, I was just going to say, and so um, a lot of our folks here at the department in our um, labs have have done a lot of homework and work on the front end. So you mentioned the seeds coming in. When a, when a grower is trying to bring seeds or varieties in, we, we do have folks that are looking at um, certificates of analysis on basically the, the past uh, of those plants and seeds to try to only allow varieties in that, that have a good track record um, of, of being below 0.3%. And, you know, Hassie's mentioned a lot, and I think we can't overplay this. This is year one of our program. So we are dealing with varieties that may have done well in a North Dakota or a Kentucky or somewhere like that. And, uh, you know, it's different in central Alabama where it's 100 degrees and no rain for three weeks and um, some of those things. And in some areas where it's humidity uh, issues we hadn't dealt with. So all, all that can affect those plants, which is why our inspectors and folks in the lab doing the testing are so important to all this. Clint, I, I'm sure you've gotten some of these phone calls. I know I have. Uh, it seems to be a lot of speculation uh, going on uh, with hemp. Uh, from what I could, that's just totally anecdotal, but I get a lot, been getting quite a few inquiries uh, from people from out of state who are looking to purchase land for the purposes of growing hemp. And they're looking at timber and considering converting that. They're looking at, uh, you know, current row crop and they're talking about adding irrigation pivots. Uh, Clint, have you, have you been fielding some of these same qu- kind of inquiries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, people just trying to understand where the market's going and, you know, what's going to be the best path for them and their business. So the question for you guys, I mean, is if this is, if this is going to be a long-term thing and, and this becomes a new, a new viable crop in Alabama and in the South, what needs to happen in Alabama for a producer to become legal? You know, how do you, how do you become a hemp farmer in Alabama? Well, <clears throat> the first step in that would be, um, a prospective grower uh, would need to uh, fill out an application uh, during the application period, which uh, we will inform you guys that the application period for the 2020 growing season, uh, that application period will begin September the 23rd of 2019. So uh, here, you know, a couple of weeks, we will be opening up applications uh, for the 2020 growing season, and we will run those uh, that application period through October 31st, 2019. What's the best place for someone? So, so we've got an application period coming, coming up rather than get into the specifics. What's the best place for the person to find out those specifics either online or at a local office? What do they, where do they need to go? The easiest place. And we will have our applications on online starting, you know, September the 23rd. And that would be uh, agi.org. Alabama.gov. Uh, you can go to the department's main page 
And at that particular time, uh, we will have a link on our main page uh, where you can be directed to our hemp webpage. And on our hemp webpage, uh, you will then, uh, those prospective uh, growers uh, and even prospective processors will be able to access uh, that particular application uh, for the 2020 growing season. Well, ultimately, well, question I've got is, you know, if assuming you're obviously you got to get legal first and foremost, you got to make sure you're you're doing everything you're supposed to do from a legal standpoint. But I, what I'm curious about is is hemp going to start replacing some of the fiber crops that we have here in the South, and you know, things like cotton and things like pine plantation. I've heard like. Like Patrick, like what you were saying, there's a multitude of uses for hemp. And, and I've even heard some people saying that hemp is much stronger than, than pine, and, you know, and it can be used for the same, a lot of the same applications that, that pine can be used for. So is our climate, and you were talking about that heat and that rain, is our climate favorable for growing hemp? You were talking about Kentucky having, having a nice climate for it. Is it, is it good there in Alabama as well? Well, we're finding that out right now. Um, you know, right in the middle of uh, year one, we've had uh, some mixed results uh, throughout the state, but uh, we currently have uh, approved licensed growers uh, from Baldwin County all the way up to uh, Lauderdale County and uh, in between. So those 157 licensed growers, uh, it's very spread out. Uh, as you know, Alabama's a, a diverse geographic state, uh, different soil conditions at times, you know, various degrees of temperature changes, uh, humidity conditions. So we're seeing right now that there's some good industrial hemp that's being grown right now. And then there's some cases where uh, uh, not so good. And And y'all know how with any uh, commodity, there's going to be learning curves and ups and downs. Um, So we're we're optimistic about it. But um, there's uh, you know, we know it's grown here in the past, and um, hopefully we can find some varieties that'll work, and it'll give some of our farmers and landowners another tool in the toolbox. Have, speaking of tools, I mean, is there anything that a, a conventional farmer needs to do to be ready to, to grow hemp? Are there any, you know, new implements, new technology they need to procure? That can vary, and we're learning this each day based on the acreage that, that a uh, grower is planting. A lot of it, and Patrick alluded to this earlier is uh, following a you know a, a tobacco model that that Kentucky's you know been the leader in uh, on the small acreage uh, plantings you know anywhere from an acre up to fifteen acres which by the way is very labor intensive uh, so somebody you know growing ten to fifteen acres of hemp for uh, floral purposes ultimately CBD purposes that's a lot of a lot of time a lot of labor and. The, the model from a implement standpoint is basically uh, kind of like a, a tobacco model. So you've got, you know, you've got some of these growers that are growing this on uh, plastic, which we call an ag world plastic culture, kind of like some of our large tomato growers are, are using today. So your, your traditional grain producer, cotton producer, uh, for them to get into uh, growing hemp for floral purposes uh, there would need to be some implement, you know, modifications and, and new 
implements you know that they would need for for their farm in, in generalities one thing that a possible grower is going to have to decide is are you going to grow for hemp or are you going to grow for the floral i mean are you going to grow for fiber or are you going to grow for the floral cbd type purposes because those are going to be different varieties of plants and um, you know, I've, I have not seen any with my own eyes yet, but I understand some of these hemp fiber varieties uh, grow 18, 22 feet tall. So some of the equipment to handle that, cut it and bale it is just going to be uh, something that, you know, someone's going to have to decide, am I in the fiber market? And if I am, I'm going to have to invest in some of these things. And that's going to be something that uh, we're going to have to see how it develops. And it's probably going to lead into some more questions, but I think a lot of that going to get into the processors and what are processors looking for and and um uh, which processor gets in an area first speaking of that i mean talking specifically hemp i mean how much can you make per acre on both the volume and an income standpoint i mean what are y'all expecting at this point that, that's been all across the board and really you know since we're in year one we don't have any hard hard numbers in alabama uh there's been Several of our growers, you know, while they're doing their due diligence, has referenced material that is published by the University of Kentucky through their uh, extension system. There's some enterprise budgets that they have uh, developed for somebody that's growing this for the fiber and also for somebody that's growing this uh, for the floral purposes. But right now, we don't have a, a good gauge here here in the state on what true input and true income it is for this crop at this time. One of the requirements for our uh, growers, licensed growers this year and, and going forward is going to maintain uh, this requirement that they report to us things like the yield, uh, the, the varieties they were growing and, and those kind of things so that we can have a better data set so that each generation of growers, if you will, each year will have better idea of what's working in Alabama, what the real world value is. And our university partners um, have been uh, willing to help us with some of that. And, and of course, USDA is uh, working to gather this information from all the states across the country so that as this industry develops, we'll all have a better understanding of it. Everything from what is a real demand to what is a realistic expectation as a producer. And jumping over to processors, I mean, are there any established in Alabama? And if you want to become one, you know, how do you do so? The processor involvement at, at the state level, we had over 65 applications come in uh, this year uh, for year one. Of those 65, we issued 59 processor licenses. Uh, we have found out over the last couple of weeks that 59 number, we're not going to have 59 processors processing hemp this this growing season. Some of those aired on the side of caution in the beginning and obtained a processor license just in case uh, they decided to uh, to take that route, you know, back in April when we issued these licenses. So we're looking at ballpark uh, somewhere in the 30 to 35 range on the number of processors that will actually do some form of, of processing uh, in Alabama. It sounds like that's about Right now, it's about one process for every five farmers. How does that? How does something like that compare to, say, cotton or or pine plantation, where you know a lot of times the marketability of your trees is is uh, very related to your proximity to a mill and what type of uh, products that mill produces. And 
you know, how does that compare to say cotton or, or pine plantation with regards to number of processors and, and the number of producers? Well, from a cotton standpoint, this year, Alabama's ballpark in, in the neighborhood of about 520,000 acres of, of cotton planted in Alabama. And and we have around, I may be off one or two on this, but we have around 24 cotton gins in the state of Alabama, 24 to 26. So they're producing a tremendous amount. And that, that's my question, right. you know, is that if people really take to producing hemp, are we going to be able to keep up with production? Is processing going to be able to keep up with production? Do y'all have any feel for the processors that are currently permitted? Do you have any feel for the amount of volume that they could handle? At this time, uh, we do not. And one thing that is uh, worthy of you guys uh, to know and your audience to know that some of our growers in Alabama have have, uh, obtained some contracts with some out-of-state companies. So they will be growing, obviously growing their crop here in Alabama uh, but when they harvest that crop and ultimately get that uh, crop, you know, released based on uh, uh, THC results, uh, that that harvested material will be taken to another state that's already had a had an established processing facility the last couple of years. So we've got mm-hmm. some out of state processor involvement as well. And and Hassie brings up a, a point there. So one of the 2018 farm bill changes. Uh, that kind of is helping to spur this industry as well. They really tried to clear up the transportation issue. Mm -hmm. So USDA's position is that if it was grown under a uh, officially licensed program, that it can move across state lines and uh, go into interstate commerce. Because there had been some issues with that that's kind of stymied this from picking up. And a lot of our gear one processors, um, it's kind of that chicken versus the egg question, right? Like which came first? So a lot of the processors are wanting to be a processor, but they're also not building um, modular may not be the right word, but they're starting small with the hopes that they can grow. They're not coming in there and putting in like a, like in the forestry world, they're not coming in and building a, a huge pulp mill complex right off the bat, right? They're kind of gauging it to see where we need to be and where we're going to go. Based on what you've seen from other states, have you been able to get your hands on any case studies that that show growing hemp to be profitable? Uh, like, if so, what what are some of the challenges with it? Obviously, we talked about environmental factors, but is there a you know another issue is just can be consumer demand? I mean, is there a ready and uh, willing market for? all these hemp products, whether it's CBD oil or, or the, the textiles or, or, or folks, is there a demand for this that's not being filled? Uh, when this legislation passed Alabama in two, 2016, the uh, uh, majority of the talk was all about the fiber. And boy, has the dynamic shifted uh, since then because we're here, you know, September of 2019 and a major- just about all of our growers uh, are growing this uh, in year one. Uh, for the floral production, ultimately CBD uh, production. So the talk about CBD oil uh, back in 2016 was uh, was very limited, and Patrick probably can clarify that. Yeah, it, it is amazing. No, no one was really talking about CBD oil then, and you know, as we've tried to tell our licensed growers now, and I would I would hope for y'all's clients or anybody listening to the podcast, the the market 
demand that is that is one question and if uh, if we had a great answer to that we wouldn't be working for the government um <laughs> but you know i mean at some at some point um uh, are the prices that people are paying for CBD oil and some of these things going to stay where they are? We're not sure. There's some people that are taking a long view on it that are saying, look, we think the CBD things like a um, any other type of, I don't know, in our lifetimes, guys, we can all think about things that, you know, was, hey, this supplement's great for recovery after a workout or, hey, take this now. And um, it came and came and went. And so there's some people that are thinking that fiber is what may be the long-term sustainable thing for the industry, something they could look into. So uh, it's there's a lot of excitement around it, and there's a lot of people involved in the hemp world that um, can almost tell you something too good to be true. And I'm not trying to dampen anybody's spirits on hemp, but I think it is extremely important for everyone to do their own research on what they think the best crop would be for them, whether it's floral or fiber. And look at the markets because um, I know y'all have heard this too. A lot of people call and and they just think they're going to get a license and they're going to be millionaires overnight uh, on planting 10 acres of hemp. And unfortunately, that's not the realities uh, 99.99% of the time. Well, I can understand their uh, thoughts when you see these little six or eight ounce bottles of CBD oil for sale for $300 and that promise all your pains and Everything will go away, and now you can even. They're starting. I'm starting to see the pet products, so you know, milk bones with CBD oil and things like that. Right. Um, to your comment, I say you know, supply and demand is going to affect everything. Absolutely, uh, it, it is a commodity. But on pure hemp from a fiber approach, is that? Uh, and I'm going to expose my ignorance here. Let's say the market goes south on you. Most crops you got to harvest them, or they're going to waste. With something that's pure fiber like hemp. I mean, can you leave it out there longer and wait on the market to rebound, or are you limited within the harvest window? There are some cases uh, for for growing hemp for the fiber purposes. The, the crop does need to be harvested, and, of course, it will then be baled. But there's been cases in some other fiber-producing states that basically that, that harvested uh, crop it is in some type of uh, barn storage facility uh, to this day and, and has not been, you know, further processed yeah so it is a um you know something that will be like has it'll be harvested annually it's not kind of like your timber where you can let it grow a little while or wait so you will harvest it um which kind of brings up a point i had a conversation with some people over the weekend uh, i attended an event and you know some of them were like well hey if we wanted to try this for a year or two is this license locking us into anything long term and the answer that's no it's a annual license so if you had a landowner that wanted to grow this, give it a good team try for a year or two, and then just didn't work out for them. I mean, there's nothing that's going to prevent them from planting that in another crop or, or putting timber back on that site or, or, you know, any kind of land management decision like that they want to do. Before a landowner pursued this, is what where's a good place to find out, um, you know, the soil characteristics that are ideal for him, you know, just to make sure they're their property's right for growing it before they even go down this road. I would encourage a prospective uh, producer to pick up the phone and, and call a uh, extension agent. Uh, I do know that they've been fielding some calls uh, this year uh, about some of the insecticide, uh, insect pressure uh, that, that's been seen. Also, too, 
I would encourage some, some growers to look at some other states that have some established programs uh, and definitely don't believe everything you type in Google and read, but try to find some credible uh, sources. Uh, look at Kentucky uh, Extension System, read some articles uh, on what they have, although their soil conditions are different than ours. Uh, they might pick up something uh, from a planning standpoint or for an economic standpoint that might help them in, in their due diligence process. Just to add to what Hassie was saying, uh, he hit on something that, that we haven't mentioned yet, and that is you know, a lot of, whether it's ag or forestry, a lot of people think about herbicides and pesticides that can help them be more efficient. It's worth mentioning that, that currently EPA doesn't have anything um, that's on the label approved for hemp, which means if you run into herbicide issues or um, insecticide uh, or insect problems, there's not going to be as many tools in that toolbox for you to just go buy a chemical and spray. Uh, EPA has, has been working with some of the manufacturers of those chemicals, and they're supposed to be approving some in the future. But when you deal with the federal government sometimes, I don't know what in the future means. So that's just something that, uh, you know, we mentioned labor earlier. Some of this is very labor intensive, and, and that gets into uh, we got farmers that are that are hand towing rows because you can't just come in there and spray a, a herbicide. We've had some issues with Hassie, help me out here in a second. Fire ants. Like, uh, fire ants. There we go. Yes, and other other things that are just, you know, generally there's a there's a chemical to handle that, uh, but right now nothing's approved. So those are just challenges that, um, you know, a prospective grower really needs to think about and and see if they're going to have a farm manager to, or someone consultant, somebody that can help them through that, and uh, are you going to have the labor for this stuff? Guys, I want to switch gears back to legality for a second and. <laughs> talk about an absentee landowner. So if a grower is permitted, can he lease land and grow hemp on that property without the landowner having to participate in any of the uh, permitting process? When you say the word legal, I'm always glad when Patrick's on the phone. <laughs> Patrick has a legal background. But uh, to, to get to your question, uh, for pilot year one, there was a uh, process in the application where both the landowner and the uh, farmer farming that particular property uh, both had to, to sign and we had to see that documentation uh, here here at the Department of Agriculture and Industries. Yeah, so basically your, your landowner, we want to know that the landowner knows what's going on on their property, but they don't have to be active in the actual farming operation. And Joe, this is something that, um, again, just there's layers to this, but uh, one thing that everyone, again, needs to know about this is even with the farm bill changes um, on a federal level, um, we are we are still required to keep the locations of the hemp fields and that information is shared with law enforcement. Now, that's not to scare anybody. Um, you know, you're not going to have uh, local or state law enforcement come and harass you. We've had a good working relationship with our law enforcement partners, but as y'all can understand, when they're flying eradication flights or driving down a highway and they look out and see something that looks like a field of marijuana, um, it saves everybody a lot of headaches when um, law enforcement knows that that's a licensed industrial hemp field. And just uh, we've also encouraged all of our growers to hey, when you get your license. Go talk to your county sheriff or your local law enforcement agents. Let them know what's going on. If they've got any questions, direct them to us. And 
uh, that's really, uh, you know, like again, anything new uh, is kind of smoothed out. And um, uh, unfortunately, um, we've had some instances where of theft. I think I alluded to that earlier, but I think that's also something to think about if you're a landowner. Um, if you have some fields or if you have some area where you can grow and it's off the beaten path, do you want to grow there versus grow into your field that's right next to, um, I don't know, I-65? Right. So you got more people seeing things and know what's going on because there, there have been some arrests made this year of folks that have seen this stuff and um, for whatever reason decided they were going to go steal Farmer Brown's crop. And uh, that is where the law enforcement agents came out and had to do what they they needed to do to handle that situation. <laughs> Something tells me they didn't steal it to go make rope. Probably not, Joe. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Necklaces. Right. That's right. Bags at the mall. Uh, Can you get crop insurance for this the way it's set up now? As we're in year one of the pilot program here in Alabama and for other states that, that are growing uh, hemp this year, there is no crop insurance available. However, uh, the 2018 Farm Bill that was recently passed, and we're awaiting the the rules and regulations from USDA, it does allow for crop insurance in, in the future. And in the last two weeks, uh, USDA has issued a press release uh, verifying that there will be uh, a whole revenue insurance program that will uh, have hemp as part of that whole revenue insurance package. So, uh, we're learning those details right now from our partners with USDA, but there will be uh, some type of insurance mechanism uh, for 2020 growing season. This is kind of an off the wall question, but you know, we all we talk on here a lot about how a managed pine stand is great wildlife habitat, something that's being rotationally burned, and it's really all about managing the understory. Do you know uh, what hemp does it have any beneficial uh, wildlife habitat qualities? Is there anything that, that wildlife can gain from hemp? Well, I've heard uh, that out in Colorado, they've had some pretty good dove hunts over some of their um, hemp fields. Is uh, Some of them they're letting go to seed and stuff. But, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten asked that, Joe, about like, hey, um, th- there's, a, there's a crop called sun hemp that y'all may be familiar with that mm-hmm. I think is in some food plot mixes. This is a, this is a different plant though because sometimes people confuse those and so uh this from what i've gathered on the hemp side it's almost going to go the other way people are going to complain and get angry about deer eating this because this stuff's running has you what uh we've heard up to two dollars a seed dollar a seed two dollars a seed wow. that's correct yeah, so it's it's not something that uh, if there are any benefits to wildlife, it's going to be completely secondary, and Farmer Brown's probably going to be mad that that deer's eating his hemp crop. So, Joe, their benefit would be staying out of it. Right. <laughs> it, it would benefit you to stay in the woods. <laughs> yes, yes. They may talk to uh, conservation and have some – uh, permits and you know people try to try to run them out of those fields or something like that so right right but what what is the the planting cycle i mean if if you're planting uh you, you're going to have an annual harvest but how many days of the year and i know you said it's based more on sunlight than it is on days but uh how many days of the year is is this crop going to be in the ground so my thinking on that is is you know, what what can you be doing with that that land 
when it's not actively growing hemp? It depends on, you know, what type of rotational agronomic model uh, that, you know, that farmer's wanting to to have for a particular growing season. But, you know, I I could envision winter wheat being harvested and, uh, and second, third week of May and then coming back behind that uh with hemp that that's that's planted you know in the in the june months or first of july so there's a possibility that you know it could be uh the, the land could be utilized you know in some form of of, of double cropping gotcha. and i think a lot of our folks that planted and again hassie is going to know more about this than i do but a lot of them that planted uh May or so of this year, they're looking at harvesting late October and November. I think that's when we're planning on our our biggest rush of harvest coming in. But just got to remember too, uh, for for the average producer, and of course we're learning every day as well. But for the average producer that's that's growing this for CBD purposes or for the floral material, uh, when you're when you're working five to fifteen acres of land, that's that's a lot of acreage to to grow. So we don't have many growers in the state that are north of triple digits uh, in regards to acreage. Well, guys, it sounds like we're still in the early stages uh, of hemp production in, in Alabama and in the South. But what what are the biggest lessons you guys have learned from this first year? Don't believe everything you read on the Internet. <laughs> I mean, you would think that would go without saying, but I think I think that is a big one. Um, like a lot of things in life, it's about relationships with your um, seed and plant producers, and it's going to be about your processors. Um, We had a lot of folks that planted uh, or got a license to plant and hadn't thought about the end game. Um, They had seed in the ground and were growing, and then they were starting to ask questions about, who am I going to sell this to? Mm. Uh, And that's, um, you know, I hope that works out well for for those folks. But I know that was some uh, scrambling around. I think a lot of people in hindsight would say it's, probably good to know who you're going to be selling to before you make an investment uh, to go into this. The security, the theft issues, I mean, we wondered if that was actually going to be something. Uh, you know, had some farmers out of an abundance of caution built high fences around where they were going to grow this stuff anyway. Uh, and then as the season went on, we saw there really were people that were stealing it. So um, that that wasn't a wasted investment so you know that's just going to be a business decision going forward on some people are they going to invest more in security on these fields or not and that's something i know have come across my desk cassie do you have any that uh from your perspective you'd add you know just uh i would encourage any grower you know do their own uh due diligence i mean we've uh we got a lot of smart farmers uh, in our state and you know they are they are seeing the the commodity prices uh, right now for our traditional commodities and and a lot of those producers are, are trying to explore and search you know different avenues to to have a uh, another tool in the toolbox to po- to possibly have a positive revenue stream but do your homework we can't stress security enough uh, genetics uh, be be cautious uh, when you're if ultimately you are an approved grower on your uh, variety selection on what you are wanting to to grow that's that's we've had some uh rather delicate conversations with folks that had found a sweetheart deal on seeds and plants you know we mentioned the price and being a little high a minute ago and um you know it's just another one of those things 
you may have found the guy that's willing to sell you a good genetic variety for a quarter of the price of everybody else, but double check that because a lot of those times we were like, hey, they're not giving y'all lab results for the certificates of analysis that match up with what, what you think you're buying. So, um, you know, it's just like everything, understand everybody wants a competitive advantage, but there's going to be some things that just... You get what you pay for. That's right. You get what you pay for, and if it's and if it sounds too good to be true, double check it. All right. Well, that's a lot of information. So, guys, you know, where do you see the future of hemp in Alabama? Well, as as we uh, as we get into latter stages of of year one, and we enter year two, uh, just know that the department, uh, led by Commissioner Pate's leadership, is cautiously optimistic about the future of, of hemp in Alabama. Uh, we want all our producers to have the ability to have another tool in their toolbox uh, to basically, you know, have some uh, additional revenue uh, for their uh, farm. Uh, but we are the regulatory agency, and there's uh, certain procedures and protocols that all prospective growers uh, have to go through, and, and we're really anxious to work with everybody that wants to be a part of this program. Well, Clint, that was some interesting learning on hemp. What do you see uh, as a future of hemp? You and your family have been involved in some form of timber production and still are for a long time. You know, if, if hemp is everything that they say it is, how do you see the competition between hemp and, and pine uh, going in the South and in Alabama? You know, I think it depends on the, I mean, they're both commodities, you know, all, all product classes of timber, it's all its own class of commodity in, in essence. So it's supply and demand rules. Yeah, it, it could go a lot of different ways depending on how it's handled, how it's processed in the state uh, or even possibly in the same mill, you know, you never know. But it, my general opinion is, you know, competition, uh, while it might hurt for a short period of time in certain product classes, uh, ultimately breeds innovation and efficiencies. And if it creates another income stream for land, it just adds value to the dirt and, uh, you know, under all is the land, and that's primarily what we specialize in. You know, just as far as we're, why we're in timber now, that's just been the best fit for us now. You never know. Hemp might be the next best fit. Yeah, uh, man, I bet you if you got a bunch of CBD plants out there and got the deer eating on them, they'd be really easy to kill. Feel no pain. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like as labor intensive as CBD is, it sounded like you had to, if you're only going to do it in small batches, you're going to have to use some of your own product because you're going to have a pretty sore back. <laughs> I believe it. Well, you got anything planned this weekend? You going on any dove hunts? So it's uh, it's all cranking up here in the South, man. It sure is a fun time to be a to be a Southerner. Uh, as dove seasons are coming in, we're getting ready for fall uh, bow hunting, whitetails. You going to get after those doves this weekend? That's the plan. Uh, we're going to keep an eye on the weather, but. Uh, with the exception of it being as hot as it is, if it stays sunny, we'll be out there. Well, folks, if you're getting out this weekend, we wish you a safe and a happy time outdoors. Uh, we appreciate you listening. Hope you learned something. If you'd like for us to send you the show each week, uh, just send us an email at pros at landhunting.com. And we sure appreciate your reviews and subscriptions wherever you listen to podcasts. Those really help us and no strings attached. You just subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and you'll get the new show each week. Y'all be safe out there. We'll talk to you again soon. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers. 
members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND.